Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, welcome to Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. My name's John. And my name's Griselda. And in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about why this is the year of queer art. It's been 50 years this summer since the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in the UK. And this anniversary is being celebrated in lots of different events, from film festivals to exhibitions. We'll also hear from Patricia Lockwood. She has been nicknamed the poet for the Twitter generation, and she has just released a memoir called Priest Daddy about growing up in the Midwest of America with a crazy-sounding Catholic priest for a father. So why are we talking about this now? Next month marks 50 years since the Sexual Offences Act of 1967, which decriminalised private sexual acts between two consenting men above the age of 21. So it's a kind of partial decriminalisation of homosexuality, basically. And so this is kind of a landmark year, I guess, because people are looking back at those 50 years, at how things have changed, what hasn't changed as well. Yeah, everyone's jumping on board. There's this multi-part BBC documentary about queer Britain. There's the huge um, queer British art show at Tate Britain, which is great. Lots of other exhibitions. The British Museum has a display, the British Library. There's one opening at the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool, a big show. Okay, let's stop there. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I could go on. There's a long list. So what did you think about the Tate show? I was kind of reading it less as an art show and more of a kind of social history. You know, it's being billed as the first major exhibition dedicated to British queer art and to encounter kind of gender fluidity long before it became a term or even, you know, a 21st century thing was quite interesting. Yeah, gender fluid entered the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, last year, in fact. So this is a very contemporary word. But yeah, as you said, I think all of these, the kind of cross-dressing and the codes and things that are displayed in the exhibition show that this is not new. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of the artworks on show are kind of nuanced and complex and show that people were thinking about this long, 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 long before yeah, we had these well, before terms. they were even allowed to. Legally. Yeah, exactly. So there's a kind of suppression, which yeah, is alone, really interesting going Yeah, let alone language. There's also, of course, the massive deal in the theatre world at the moment is Angels in America, Tony Kushner's play from 1993, which is being revived at the National Theatre with Andrew Garfield in the lead role. I have been trying for a really long time <laughs> to get tickets. I have tried everything, even the National Theatre live screening, which is when they put it into cinemas live. Even that has sold out across the whole of London. Yeah, so you were quite hopeful about that when you mentioned it. You were like, let's won't. go see the play. <laughs> yeah, like, not so much. Mm, not going to happen. Um, no, I mean... the. I think this, the show sold out in kind of less than an hour or something for the entire run. And this is a really kind of searingly beautiful but very kind of painful depiction of the AIDS crisis uh, through this kind of central couple, one of whom is is dying. Apparently, it's brilliant. It's been getting rave reviews. But not everyone's happy about this celebration of gay rights. There was that Daily Mail columnist. Who said people should resign in disgust 
that's a quote from the National Trust because the National Trust had put Ugh. on this exhibition called Queer City in Soho. They had recreated this amazing club called the Caravan, which was a kind of members club in a sort of bar, the Freud Cafe bar, which is near it's where it was originally. And they were doing these kind of LGBTQ tours of Soho, focusing on kind of club culture, going from, I think, 1918 to 1967. So up until the date that we've been talking about. Which obviously, you know, the National Trust has a kind of quite, I would say, older and probably more conservative uh, membership. So this was sort of quite a statement for them to do that. And there was, you know, a slight ruffling of the feathers, I think. Yeah, and it's easy to look past where we're at today. Obviously, you know, the UK landscape has been transformed with civil partnerships in 2004 and gay marriage in 2013. Progress is obviously being made as evidenced by all these great shows and plays. But people have been very quick to point out at the same time that progress has been very slow since this act was brought in in 1967. And even the the term queer is only quite recently been kind of entered a sort of mainstream of the language, I think. So Tate has called it show queer art. Yeah, they define it as, they say terms such as lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans were not widely recognised for much of this period, blah, blah, blah. We have used the broader term queer to avoid imposing more specific identity labels. And that does hint at how fluid this term is and how... Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's what's different about the term queer and the term gay, which is about kind of se- you know, gay is about sexual or- orientation. Queer also takes into account things like gender identity, whether you identify as the sex that you were born with at birth, or whether you consider yourself, you know, ideas like being non-binary, much more fluid. And it's kind a of less stable definition than gay or lesbian. Yeah, and it's one that's a kind of changing and uh, shifting as society changes. I think. Joining us in the studio today to help us talk about the very idea of queer art and what it represents is um, Philip Pentra. He is the novelist, critic and journalist who has written about gay life and art, among many, many other things. Also with us is Jackie Walschlager, who's the FT's art critic, and she reviewed the current exhibition at Tate Britain on queer art. So thank you to Jackie and to Philip for joining us. Hello, thank you. Thank you for inviting us. (laughs) Philip, I wanted to start with you with quite a sort of big question, I guess, about what you see queer writing or kind of queer art more broadly as being. How would you kind of define it? Well, I think the locus of, um, of this particular form of art, I've come to think, is not in the creator but in its reception and whether it's taken to by a gay or lesbian audience so there are there are creative artists who aren't uh, themselves gay or lesbian who speak to an audience who are kind of um, rendered alternative in retrospect so it's kind of how amenable the work of art is to a gay reading Yes, rather obviously, than how yeah. the, the artist identifies. Obviously, many, perhaps most of these statements will be created by gay or lesbian people who are speaking, trying to speak to that particular audience as well as to a, a wider audience. But I think it can go beyond that. And Jackie, how would you define queer art? Do you think it's think subject matter, aesthetic? fascinating. What Philip was saying made me think of Duchamp, hmm. who said that he thought for modern art a gay audience was an ideal audience, which isn't to say it's limited to that, but there is a way of approaching things there, isn't there, which is finding a space which is different, which is asking people to think in a different way. It always seems to me rather fascinating that Duchamp launched conceptual art with a urinal which was at some level 
a gay, not a sort of icon, you know, it was something... It has that, kind of associations. It has, it has, yeah. it has yeah. associations. I wouldn't want to pigeonhole any artist as mm. a gay artist. I think that's a limiting thing to do. And insofar as, as gay sexuality is, is a subject, I think, I mean, Hockney seems to me such a perfect example that those early works, they're thrillingly sexual. Not, I think, just to a, a gay audience, but to, to all of us there. And they're about much more than that. They're about freedom of expression. They're about where you can take painting. They're what you can do with abstraction. And what interests me there is that he pushes it on. And by the time you get the double portraits in the 1970s, he has normalised gay relationships. I think one of the things about this category of, of gay artists, and I myself don't don't mind it at all, you know, start to think maybe there's a case for starting to talk about straight art as a small category. Yeah, drawing lines through genres based on an artist's sexuality it struck me when I was going around the Tate exhibition. Is that insulting? No, absolutely not. No, it's. I think it's insulting to set that on one side and I think it's a terrible habit of the art establishment to be able to talk about the eroticism of uh, Manet's Olympia but not to talk about how clearly sexy mm -hmm. you know a triptych of uh, Francis Bacon's is. I, I really shocked a curator of a Bacon show once by asking him whether he thought that a painting by Bacon of a matador being buggered was as a sexy as I thought it was. That simply wasn't a possibility for him. And I think <laughs> when, when, when was this? How oh, long about, was about three years ago. So um, very, recently. very recently. I think actually one of the great things about the Hodgkin show at the, uh, the National Portrait Gallery is that it really does acknowledge the erotic possibilities of Hodgkin's um, coming out and how that transformed in 19, late 1970s. You're right, although he always denied it, that when he comes out there's a new energy life freedom freedom to mm. the painting no, there's no question at all that that happens but it also seems to me that those very very sexy paintings like waking up in naples and in bed in venice he can get away with it because they're gay you wouldn't find a straight artist daring to do that he's mm. reprising matisse he's reprising bonnard and it seems to me that that is something that all sorts of, quote, minority groups can do. If you think about Cecily Brown, she can take on Abex in a way that no white male artist could dare. If you think about Chris Ophelia, what he does with the figure, how beautiful he makes it, no white artist can do that, but he can do it because it's black. Surely it's because, you know, for a white man painting a naked white female prostitute, it's a very, very old subject. Precisely. You know, so you get a Hodgkin, new energy. For Hodgkin, you know, that is not a subject that's been gone over and over. So there's a sense of discovery and uh, as well as... It's um, a kind of new classical, male gaze yeah. rather it's than a new an old male one. gaze, yeah. I wonder if we could kind of go back a little bit and think about how queer art or gay art, however we define it, has kind of developed in tandem alongside society. I'm quite interested in the way that 
the establishment has undertaken a kind of rearguard action to contain and restrain what was evidently a really major sort of outpouring of energy. And similarly, I think the rise over the last 50 years of the prize-giving approach to art and to culture so that things don't kind of emerge now through the interest and acclamation of a of an audience of a of a clique of admirers but it has to be gone over by a, a jury who decide that well we're going to have a gay writer on our shortlist and he's going to come third <laughs> i think that's uh, you know i think it's absolutely astonishing for instance if, if you look probably uh, probably many of the greatest novels of the 20th century were written by gay men. Proust, Henry James, Thomas Mann, Ian Forster could go on and on and on. It took uh, 50 years before the Booker Prize was given to a, a gay man. Now, there's some kind of control of yeah. the energy of culture going on there, isn't there? And it's worth pointing out that, you know, the success of Alan Hollinghurst is mm. relatively recent when you think... Exactly. The Swimming Pool Library, which came out in 1988, was um, unusually sexually explicit narrative for yeah. that time. And, you know, he said himself that there weren't many frank depictions of gay sexual behaviour in the English literary mm. novel. So this is all... And because Alan was working for the TLS at... Uh, at the time, discussions took place all the way up to Rupert Murdoch about whether it was proper for an employee of News International to publish a book on this theme. But I think that there is a way in which uh, the establishment, if you want to call it that, has decided, OK, well, we've got one. We don't need any more. So there's a kind mm. of tokenism yeah, at work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah. Do you think that at all with Hockney? Because in the art world, he's trumpeted I... as... You know, I don't actually think that with Hockney. I think it's important that when someone is a great artist or writer, they are seen beyond that as well. The very greatest artists or writers are that. Now, I respond... But, but do you not think for the establishment, it's much mm. easier, a character like Hockney, very palatable, very charming man, you know... Rather than well, Derek Jarman. Well, Precisely. yes, I think that's true, but I think you also have to give credit to how Hockney made the establishment accept who he was. There's the time and the man, isn't there? There's something was happening in the 1950s when he began to make that art. I expect that he, he made a real difference to the social climate by making it and by being so celebratory about it. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think Francis Bacon is very sexy and the eroticism is in the paint. It's in everything. It's, it's there. But there's and, a kind of darkness there as, and an but, anguish but that, that is yeah. Hockney but, is. But that's what's so interesting, it, it, yeah. it seems to me. The power of Bacon... Of course, it's a challenge to the establishment, but I think he's also. I, mean, I think some of the power comes from a, a dispute within himself. He felt being gay was like having a limp. It was. It was a defect. He didn't want to have it, but he had it, and so I think that they, the images, celebrate, and and yet, of as you say, are, are very dark. I yes. think this is the moment when we have to say that there are ways in which the the gay audience has definitely a different reaction to gay art than mass audience. A lot of gay men, myself included, often find Francis Bacon screamingly funny. And I, I mean, there is, there is this strange... Well, not all of it, obviously, but some of it is definitely extremely funny for... 
most people, there is a, a, an irreconcilable gap between Francis Bacon's public persona, all those stories about him um, saying bitchy things in, um, in Wheelers, and these supposedly existential black paintings. And I just don't think there is that gap for a gay audience. The more contemporary example I would cite is um, Kareth Wynne Evans' uh, piece in the Tate. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece, the neon piece. Looks like a, a white page hanging above the... And then as you walk in, it sort of unfolds and is overtaken by all sorts of what I discovered when I went with a, a, a group of four or five uh, slightly drunk gay friends is some um, <laughs> screamingly rude imagery about some um, stuff that I probably won't go into now and we were just falling about laughing every so often in this this room there were other people who had got the joke and were were laughing around us most people what, what what's going on what's what what are they laughing mm. at it was like a little communication between Catherine Evans and us do you think there's a kind of this kind of coded representation in yes. some sense is that what you're getting because i think that comes out in the Tate show well, well yeah one of the rooms in the Tate show is labeled hidden meanings or definitely something like that definitely the, but over time yes. that has changed of course but so it, much but it comes out i think even more powerfully in the 1950s american art in Rauschenberg mm. and Johns just the I mean, so much there is coded, isn't it? That was such a slap in the face for the American establishment to make art of that quality coming from a non-conventional white American male perspective. Yeah. There are moments in culture when a sort of gay aesthetic dominates. Well, and do you, do you think we're reaching that point now? Because Mm. You know, as Griselda and I discussed earlier, there are a whole host of exhibitions this year. Apart you know, from the anniversary bit. Yeah, of course. To what extent do we think queer life is fully integrated into mainstream art? Mm. If there is such a thing. Mm. I don't think. I don't think totally, and I don't necessarily think it would be a good thing. I think actually, those hidden meanings, those you know, suppressed existences, they're a very bad thing for one's everyday life. You don't want to live your life in secrecy but they're a very good thing for art. If there are all sorts of um, ways of reading something, some of which are only meant for a coterie or a small section of society, that can't help but create a rich and rewarding work of art. I think that is exactly the paradox. Now, I remember about 30 years ago talking to Alison Hennigan, the, the lesbian writer and critic, and she said, as a, as a teenager, where there was nothing out there visibly, she would mine any number of sort of fiction and whatever, looking for clues, yes. for little things that were stated, for just to make her feel it wasn't just me. When I think about some of my favourite novels, which include Thomas Mann, goodness me, it is a subterranean thing, just bubbling, not quite there, which, which is so evocative and gives it power. I'm not sure if I look at Wolfgang Tillmans, where it is all out there, it's just not great art in the way that Francis Bacon is great art. It's not fighting. I think yeah, there's Hock also... Hockney said of uh, Bacon, you can smell the balls of his work, whereas with Wolfgang Tillmans, you can very much see the balls <laughs> in large format. Do you think, though, in a sense that on some level it's... I mean, it's important mm -hmm. that we 
you know, teenagers growing up gay can watch TV and see people who they might identify with on screen in a way that wasn't possible 50 years ago. I mean, the kind of representation of different types of gayness and queerness is totally mm. different. Do I you, think, do you agree? Well, I quite value the way that uh, you had to work a little bit harder. <laughs> it was good for the imagination. It also uh, got you out of the house a bit more. The more openly gay societies get, the more you fail to venture out of the the little corner of society that you're you're born in. Thinking about sort of a very mainstream kind of pop culture, though, I mean, a film like Brokeback Mountain in 2005, I mean, that felt like quite a sort of groundbreaking moment in terms of like a, a blockbuster, high-budget mm. film with these a Yeah, Hol- Hollywood, of, of all the main art forms, Hollywood has perhaps the, le- the least impressive record well, perhaps gay representation. The, well, I, you don't have to work as I hard. Cried, <laughs> I cried at Brokeback Mountain like everybody else, but afterwards I did think there was rather a lot surrounding it about being made by, by straight people. Two main actors gave lots of interviews about how hard it had been to kiss each other. I mean... Please, you know, uh, you know the and you know the and still, Oscars are thrown at straight people demeaning themselves to perform in gay roles. When an Oscar goes to a an out gay man performing an out gay role, then maybe we can talk. At the same time, though, and you mentioned this in your piece, Jackie, you say, um, you know, no great artist needs the crutch of identity politics. And then you go on to point out, and yet 22% of Britons asked last year believed homosexuality should be a crime, which is pretty startling. I'm and then, shocked by that. Yeah, I think we all read it, yeah. Um, but when you add on top, you know, Tate, Tate are designing shows <clears throat> for hundreds of thousands of people to go to. So they, you know, they do need to simplify things. I think that when we say, you know, we don't need the crutch of identity politics, we perhaps, I would gently suggest, we forget the way that heterosexuals have an identity politics as well. Mm. And if we say, I don't identify myself as gay, we forget the way in which uh, straight people identify themselves as heterosexual every moment of the day. There's so and much invisible. There's so much invisible. Just a given. You know, when a straight person says, "Excuse me, I've just got to phone my wife," they're not making a political point. If I say, oh, "Excuse me, I've just got to phone my husband," very often it is received as some kind of aggressive political point I'm making, even if it's not in my mind. It's just you know how I refer to him. Yeah, the simplest act of kind of holding hands is not a. Oh, in most senses, not a political statement, no. but the fact that it could still be read as one, I think, probably shows how we've come quite far since '67, but mm. relatively not that far. Yes. Yeah, and this is, you know, we've been talking about art, obviously, this is a culture podcast, but, you know, when you consider the fact there isn't an openly gay footballer in the Premier mm. League, for example, is absurd. My interest in that is less than zero. <laughs> I could but not sports care. lags no, way exactly. behind. But, you know, but we're surely it's a good thing far more that Tate put that show on, would you? Yes, I mean, absolutely. That, it was that a great show. That is out there, yeah. that is saying to the 22% now just yeah. hang on. The great and, thing about it was that it wasn't po-faced. It was actually really funny. It did actually speak to gay people as well as explaining it in a... Um, serious way to the right of I, I thought it it attempted to give another way of looking and mm. I found it very thrilling mm. to see pre-Raphaelitism through Simeon Solomon yeah. or to see British plein air painting through Henry Scott Tuke 
And I thought, okay, so I I haven't. There are many ways of seeing, and and it, it made me realise that, as you say, mine was only one way of seeing, that the heterosexual one is a niche. The show was just worth it for having done that. Our interview this week is with the Twitter-savvy and millennially mischievous writer-poet Patricia Lockwood. Patricia Lockwood I first heard about when I read her poem Rape Joke in 2013. It went viral on the internet, which isn't totally common for poetry, but it's a very clever sort of play with what rape jokes are. Is it itself a rape joke? In fact, it's about a rape that happened to her. So it's playing with like being serious and not serious at the same time. This is the opening of the poem. The rape joke is that you were 19 years old. The rape joke is that he was your boyfriend. The rape joke, it wore a goatee. A goatee. Imagine the rape joke looking in the mirror, perfectly reflecting back itself and grooming itself to look more like a rape joke. Ah, it thinks, yes, a goatee. No offence. So you can see there her slightly zany, kind of surreal sense of humour but yeah, then she's dealing with these kind of difficult, thorny things at the same time. Well, it pretty much goes against everything you think of when you think of a poet, right? Yeah. The stereotype of a poet. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> she's not sort of precious at all. She kind of also really made her name on Twitter. Yeah, her tweets are like poetry, basically. Yeah, and what does she call them? Sexts. Sexts, yeah, Sexts. which are a particular kind of tweet that she does. And we have loads of them here in front of us. One says, A ghost teasingly takes off his sheet. Underneath, he is so sexy that everyone screams out loud. You like that one? Yeah, I like that one. Weirdly, I find them easier to read than say out loud. Another one is, Easy listening Dracula drinks the blood of a saxophonist. He smiles and feels the mellow blood spread through him like smooth jazz. (laughs) So they're they're quite cringy. quite bizarre, aren't they? And like surreal. I like this one. Rainbow go into a prism and it shoots so much white light. (laughs) But yeah, so yeah, she's pretty she's big got, on Twitter. Yeah, she's got this very funny, like, weird Twitter voice. She sort of thrives in that environment of these, you know, 140 characters and being very witty. Well, I love her real voice as well, as everyone's as, about to hear. As everyone is about to hear. And the reason we're interviewing her now is that she has just published her memoir, Priest Daddy. About a very weird daddy. Daddy is a priest, as the title suggests, a Catholic priest who converted. And she had this very unusual upbringing in the American Midwest. So here's one of the most exciting poets writing right now, Patricia Lockwood. My father did convert to Catholicism soon after he joined the Navy, so he was very young. This is like the most metal thing ever, the way my father was converted. His father considered joining the military to be like the most déclassé thing that he could think of. So he's like, well, that's what I'm going to do then. So he joins the Navy and he puts on one of those very sort of... um flamboyant sailor suits. You know the ones I mean. These had like bell bottoms at this point. It was very like village people. So he is in the middle of the ocean and he is a rock and roll atheist. And on that patrol, they were screening a movie for the sailors that was, it happened to be by the grace of God, The Exorcist. And they only had apparently this one movie and they played it for them something like 72 times. And it must have really gotten in my father's head because he's sitting there watching The Exorcist in his little sailor suit, and he looks up and he's like, oh, holy shit, God is real, all of this is true. (laughs) So it was very cinematic in that sense. You know, you think of a conversion experience like someone getting knocked off a horse, but this is a conversion experience for the modern day. You know, you're on a fucking submarine. (laughs) 
So I grew up in the part of America that you would consider to be either the Rust Belt or the Midwest. I split my time between two cities that I would consider to be more conservative or religious than most, Cincinnati, Ohio, and St. Louis, Missouri. But even in those conservative places, my experience was much more religious and much more regimented than I think most people experienced. <laughs> First of all, we weren't living in regular houses. We were living in rectories, basically. So it's like spookier than a regular house. There are crosses on every single wall. And, you know, my mother is, is absolutely wonderful. And she is what I would consider to be a normal person as much as a mother can be. You know, so she, she always wants to talk about like various dangers or who has recently been discovered to have cancer, that sort of thing. But then my father is walking around and he's wearing the full priest outfit at all times. So growing up in that sort of environment, it was hard to tell where church ended and where the rest of regular life began. I was part of a very special gang that was a gang for the Lord when I was in high school. Yeah, and it was associated with the school that I went to. And it was one of those groups where we all spoke in tongues and we sort of raised our hands to the heaven and happy clapping. Happy clapping is a thing, right? So we would clap and we would sing. It was all very devoted and very insane is probably the best way to to describe that. When it comes to Donald Trump, I do feel that I should have seen it coming because I grew up with all of the warning signs. I grew up in the places where people really voted for him, where a majority of people voted for him. But of course, I didn't see it coming. You know, I think the situation in America would look different right now if anyone could say, I told you so. You know, I I was the Cassandra of the situation. I warned you all. I knew it was going to happen. None of us, even the people who should have been better prepared, the people who were raised with just very, very conservative values, and not just conservative values, but the sort of ideas that you get from talk radio and from email forwards that are sort of telling you that Hillary Clinton is a murderer with dozens of kills under her belt. I mean, I grew up with that kind of thing. I should have known that there were more people in my situation who had taken those ideas to heart. I blame myself. (laughs) The place I live now is what you would consider the Deep South. So the morning after the election, I woke up and I put on the closest clothes that came to hand. It was like this giant Rocky sweatshirt. For unrelated reasons, I had a black eye, which I had achieved by accident. So it looked like I was like a battered woman walking the streets. And all these people looked happy. And I felt so alien among them, just walking the streets and looking around and looking into the different faces and thinking, did you do this? Were you one of the people who wanted this? I think that Twitter is an excellent place to encounter poetry. There's even a poetic sensibility among certain tweeters who, you know, they tweet and they consider their tweets to be poetry. I 
I know I've encountered people and poems that I would never have seen otherwise. And it's something where you can be just scrolling down your regular timeline and not expecting to see a poem. And then suddenly you do. And there's something very pleasant about that. And even sort of like almost like a pastime in which poetry is more woven into the fabric of your experience. We are just living our lives on the internet and it's possible to encounter something really beautiful that is real art just in the course of our our day-to-day experience of like the online fabric. The internet, when I look back and sort of see things in retrospect, has really shaped every major aspect of my life, which is not something you feel as you're actually going along. But I think it's different for those of us who got our home computers maybe when we were kind of in our early teens and it was the family computer and you sort of like have to wait till everyone goes to bed and then you like log on and there's this terrible like like a logging on sound that no one ever hears anymore where it's actually dialing through to the internet. So I met my husband online and eventually after he had developed cataracts in them and we were faced up with a $10,000 medical bill. I also raised the money for him on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is where I first came to prominence. It was where people first wrote about my book. It's where my agent found me. When I think about it, really every significant thing in my life that has led to this moment really came about because of the internet. I think people think of me as being much more of a sexy and sex sort of oriented writer than I actually am. I just think it was always sort of part of my natural vocabulary that I was kind of filthy minded, but in a very innocent way. So I'm writing all all these sex sort of things, but they're completely impossible. You know, like Godzilla's having sex with the Empire State Building. So people talk about me being this sort of sexy young writer. But in reality, if you try to implement any of the things I write about, you will be arrested or you will hurt yourself very badly. It's not going to (laughs) happen. When Rape Joke was published, I was living with my parents. So that was a very, I do not wish that experience on anyone. So it might have been anxiety inducing anyway, because to suddenly have that sort of attention, whereas before you were toiling in obscurity is quite a shock. But it's a completely different thing when your priest dad is in the next room jamming out on his guitar. And you know, your mother is reading the poem on Facebook when you come downstairs and you see her and she's crying and you think, oh, no, (laughs) oh, no. I do feel like an outsider. And I think I'm treated slightly as an outsider, but in a kind way. I have been welcomed in, but I do think it's different when you haven't had higher education and maybe when you didn't grow up in a middle-class household. I mean, it's always going to be different for writers who grew up a little bit poorer. We're always going to have different experiences. But yes, now when I travel places and I actually meet and read with the people I admired so much growing up, Yeah, I do feel as if I'm standing a little bit outside, almost as a a witness, just kind of watching through the glass, not exactly part of it. Looking 
Looking back on the scene where I walk into my father's study and he tells me that there's no money to send me to college when I expected to go in a week and a half and I was all ready and, you know, completely ready to start my college journey, it seems more tragic now. The dominant voice in American writing is always going to be from the coast. And I don't know that we have as strong of a sense of the regional writer now in America as we used to have. I mean, some of our greatest writers came from the South. We had Flannery O'Connor. We had Eudora Welty. We had Carson McCullers, who I think needs to experience something of a revival. But I think now, when you grow up in those smaller places and you want to be a writer, you move to New York. You move to the coast. So I think that we may be losing a little bit of a regional tradition that in America has always been very strong. But what's happening now, perhaps to compensate for it, is we are hearing from many, many more black writers. We're hearing from people who grew up in poverty. And part of that's happening because of the internet. So those voices are coming to the fore because that is a very democratic process where whatever is good is going to rise to the top. Pre-Study by Patricia Lockwood is published by Alan Lane and is out now. Recommend you all go and read it. It's really, really good. And Queer British Art 1861 to 1967 is on at Tate Britain until the 1st of October. Next week, we're going to be talking to the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Elizabeth Strout about her latest book, Anything is Possible. Everything else is produced by Chika Ayres. We've been John Sunya and Griselda Murray-Brown and our music is composed and produced by Fatten. <laughs>